Good morning. It's nice to be with you this morning in, uh, in Sainfield, and uh, thank you for the, the warm welcome and the, the really, really good singing. Um, we're going to turn this morning to John's Gospel. We're going to look at John's Gospel in chapter 12. Um, uh, forgive me, I've, I've kind of worked my way through John's Gospel, and I just happened to be at chapter 12 this morning. Sorry you missed what went before. Um, but hopefully you'll get the context of where we are in this chapter and uh, we'll enjoy what the Lord has to say to us this morning from John chapter 12. We're very much looking to him to speak to us. We don't need to hear my voice. We need to hear his voice this morning as we read his word together. Picking up at John chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then Jesus let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. And we'll end our reading there at verse 11. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you do thrill our souls. Father, we thank you that there are so many here this morning whom you know personally as their own and personal saviour. And Father, Jesus is everything to them. But Father, we're conscious, Lord, that other things can come into our lives and can deceive us and can draw us away. And Father, there are even those things that can halt a person coming to faith in Christ. And Father, we ask, Lord, that this morning as we contemplate your word together, that you would show us again how worthy Jesus is the great value that you have in the person of your Son. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that we would go from here transformed, less like ourselves and more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The question we're asking this morning from this passage is, how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth? If you want to add on to the end of that question, how much is Jesus worth to me? That probably would be a good thing to make it really, really personal. John Owen, the, the Puritan, famously wrote a book entitled 
the death of death in the death of Christ. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? The death of death in the death of Christ. And in that book, Owen was endeavouring to communicate the truth that the reason the Christian does not need to fear death is because Jesus has overcome death through his own death and resurrection. And you would think that having lived a sinless life and dying a death on the cross, Jesus would be valued by people above all else. But the reality in my life, and probably in your life as well, is that we are not always so inclined. Other things come in. They, they deceive us. They seduce us. They draw away uh, us from valuing Jesus as we should because he's preeminently worthy and preeminently valuable. We may have been ambivalent at a stage in our life to Jesus, or we may even have been downright hostile, rejecting the gospel. And perhaps we could echo the words of the the hymn which is called Jehovah said, Can you? And the hymn says, Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah said, can you, was nothing to me. Jehovah is a word for God and said, can you means righteousness. And together what that hymn was trying to imply is that the Lord is our righteousness. He stands before us and he gives us his righteousness and makes it ours whenever we come to him by faith. And the principle of value is that it will depend on a person's willingness to pay. Now, I don't know, a lot of you would have looked at those pictures this morning of the vintage tractors yesterday, and some of you would be, probably the men would be reaching into their wallets and thinking, I would love to buy one, how much? But the wives might not be that crazy about it. And they might not value the tractor the same way the husband does. And I don't want to stereotype, it might be the wife that values the tractor more. But the reality is that different things are more or less valuable to a person depending on their willingness to pay. And so it is in the art world with paintings or with music or with anything wherever there's a subjective value that can be had. But as Christians, however, we believe not in paying for salvation but in the fact that our salvation has been paid for us. And the principle of value is just as relevant because we must recognize and continue to value the true cost, the true worth of what has been paid for us in the person of the Lord Jesus. And when a person comes to Christ, he should become altogether worthy, altogether valuable. The whole point of John's gospel is that we would believe. And he he summarizes that in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31 whenever we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here in chapter 12, immediately following the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, Jesus has withdrawn temporarily to Ephraim. He knows that 
the next time he appears in public, the extremes of reaction to him are going to surface. The, the love is going to become more sincere. The hatred is going to become more vicious. The belief is going to become more genuine. And the rejection is going to become more hostile. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, we see an episode whereby Jesus comes back into the public frame. And the reaction is evidenced through the value placed upon Jesus, first of all by Mary, then by Judas, then by Jesus himself, then by the crowd of people, and then by the chief priests. And value, as we have said, is defined as the regard that something is held to deserve, the importance, the worth, or usefulness of something. And without even realizing it, we constantly show how much we value people, places, or things by how much regard we give to them. And the offer we make to purchase something, the price we accept when selling something, the time we spend when visiting with someone or whatever, all of these things point to how much we value them. And here we're going to look at how much value Jesus has. And in verses 1 to 3, we will see the value of Jesus expressed. In verses 4 to 6, we'll see the value of Jesus questioned. In verses 7 and 8, we'll see the value of Jesus explained. And then in verses 9 through to 11, we'll see the value of of Jesus realized. So first of all, the value of Jesus expressed in verses 1 through to 3. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, then took Mary, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Here in verses 1 to 3, we see the timing of the expression, the circumstances of the expression, and the outrageousness of the expression. Jesus is on his divine timetable, and he times his visit to Bethany perfectly. It's six days before the Passover. And this is the third Passover that is mentioned in John's Gospel, and it bookends the three-year public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And as we know, the, the Jewish feasts play a, a critical role in John's Gospel. In John chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, we're reminded of the, the time that the, the, the Jews spent in the wilderness and we read in that portion that Jesus' time had not yet come. It wasn't time yet for him to go to the cross. But now, at the Feast of Passover, which is a reminder of the Lamb having been slain as a sacrifice for Israel while they were in Egypt, Jesus' time has come. You see, the cross is getting closer and Jesus is getting ready to go and to die in our place. The circumstances here in verse 2 are important. And so surprised are they at, at Jesus' visit um, that they throw a, a dinner party. And Lazarus is there as, as, as well. In the parallel passages 
in Matthew 26, 1 to 13, and Mark 14, 3 to 9, identify the location for this meal as the home of Simon the leper. This is a unique opportunity to honor a unique person. I know how they've changed. You remember Martha previously fussing, getting in a flap around whether or not Mary was helping her in Luke chapter 10. She's no longer fussing and comparing herself to Mary. The encounter that she's had with Jesus in chapter 11 has changed Martha. She's more settled. She's more confident in the Lord Jesus. And then there's Lazarus, miraculously there, sitting at the table, raised from the dead, no longer carrying the stench of death, but alive, showing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And this time, Mary isn't just sitting quietly. She's going to do something outrageous as she worships the Lord Jesus. It's both economically outrageous and it's culturally outrageous. It's economically outrageous because Mary takes a pound, which is probably about three quarters of one of our pounds of weight, of ointment that's made from nard or, 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 or what's called here spikenard. And it's not indigenous to the Palestinian area. It would have come from as far away as India. And remember, this is in the days before there were planes or, or ships or, or, or trains or, or, or anything else to bring things. These things came on, on the back of camels and horses as they were transported back. A very, very costly supply chain to bring it back to Palestine. And she has this little alabaster flask. It's sealed. And inside it is spikenard. It's incredibly, incredibly value. We know from Judas's indignation in verse 5 that the value of this ointment was 300 denarii or 300 pence, which at, at our 17 pence a liter, equivalent to a denarii, equated to about 51 pounds. And maybe you think 51 pounds isn't that much. But in the context of the time that this was written, 51 pounds would have been equivalent to one year's wages for one laborer. Your whole salary for one year in this little flask of ointment. That's how valuable it was. And whilst Matthew and Mark emphasize the anointing of Jesus' head... John focuses upon the anointing of his feet. So it's likely that Mary started and poured the ointment on Jesus' head and then poured it on his feet. I wonder how she felt as she cracked open that seal on the flask and proceeded to pour it, not a drop or two, keeping some for herself, the whole thing poured out as an anointing upon Jesus. The very idea of such waste would have probably left people incredulous as they stood by and looked at the economic abandon that that Mary's executing, pouring it out. And they probably thought, what a waste. It was 
economically outrageous, but it was also culturally outrageous. The social protocols at this time for male and female social interaction were strict, and they placed the female in a particularly distant role away from her male counterpart. And Jesus has broken down so many of these barriers before, particularly in John 4 as he meets the the, the Samaritan woman at the well. So when Mary proceeds to let down her hair and then wipe Jesus' feet, it would have shocked the onlookers. But she wasn't being disrespectful. She was being humble. And she was being devoted as, as not only she takes the ointment and pours it out, but she uses her hair to wipe that ointment off. The idea is to get the fragrance of the ointment onto Jesus. And then she wipes the superfluous ointment away. Dwight Pentecost, when he writes, highlights that such anointing was not uncommon. Rabbis in particular would have had their heads anointed with fragrant oil. Not that expensive. But this is expensive oil that would have been reserved for kings. Mary's basically saying, you're my king. You're my saviour. You're my Lord. And as she cracks open the seal that was keeping the lid fresh and pours it on Jesus' head and feet and wipes it with her hair, she is showing and expressing the value that she has for Jesus. And that's the first thing that we see here in this passage when we ask the question, how much is Jesus worth? We see the value of Jesus expressed. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. How do I express the value in which I hold him? Is it a gesture? Or is it genuine? Is it light or is it heavy? Is it economical? Or is it extravagant? This is the Lord Jesus receiving an expression of humble devotion from Mary. But not everyone's pleased about it. As we go to verses 4 and 6, we see secondly the value of Jesus questioned. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Mark's gospel records that those present were indignant. Matthew specifies that the disciples were indignant, but it is John who zeroes in on Judas as being particularly indignant. Behind the veneer of spiritual and practical concern for the poor, there was a sinful motive to take a proportion of the money that the selling of the ointment would have generated and spend it on himself. That's what Judas wanted to do. Take some of that money, build up his own coffers, and look after himself. As in all of Judas's time with Jesus, he was secretly calculating what he could get out of the relationship with Jesus. 
And it wasn't the spiritual that he was trying to get out of it. It was the financial. Christopher Ashe says of Judas, he is a selfish man, but he cloaks his selfishness with a pious social concern. What Judas is really saying is that Jesus isn't really worth it, that he isn't as valuable as Mary expressed. Basically, Judas is saying, I know better. I'll run my own financial affairs. I will not submit to Jesus. John Samuel, whenever he speaks of Judas's calculation in verse 5, whenever he tries to work out what it's worth, says this wasn't a measure of Judas's brain power or his business acumen. It was a measure of his betrayal. Judas is like an accountant. I hope I'm not offending any accountants here this morning, but he knows the value of things in this world, but he doesn't know the value of things in the world to come, and that is what is most important. And there's a warning here for every professing believer, every church member, the subtle deception that can come through the lure of money. Mary was devoted but Judas was deceptive. He was in it for what he could get out of it. And what Judas failed to see was that rather than grasping, he just needed to receive what Jesus was freely giving. He he looked at the money and thought, this is what it's all about, when what Jesus was offering was an eternal home with him in heaven forever. And Judas was so preoccupied with right here and right now, he couldn't look forward and see to then. And we know what Judas's end was, and it was absolutely tragic. Is that not the way our world sees the gospel when it comes to the needs of the poor and the preaching of the gospel? And with often genuine motives. They say, let's, let's raise money, let's give money, let's fix the problem. It's just one fraction of the problem. Social inequality is a terrible thing, but sin's a worse thing. And to address social inequality without addressing sin is failing to get to the root cause of the problem. And that's why social action is so popular in our world, but repentance and faith in Jesus is so unpopular because it exposes us as what we are as sinful. And no matter how much money we raise for charity, no no matter how much money we give to charity, it will never cancel out our sin debt. Only one thing will cancel our sin debt, and that's what Jesus is going to go and do on the cross. And the reality is that whenever a person comes to Christ, it transforms their life. So they meet the needs of those that need. And Christopher Ash goes on to say, it is good to care for the poor. But unless we love Jesus from the heart, our concern for the poor can just be a way of making ourselves feel better about ourselves. It doesn't deal with sin. It puffs us up with pride and makes us think that we are better than we are. So we see the value 
of Jesus, expressed the value of Jesus, questioned. And thirdly, we see the value of Jesus explained in verses 7 and 8. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. At this point, Jesus speaks up and explains not only the value of what Mary has done and the value of caring for the poor, but also, and most importantly, the value of him being there with the disciples at this crucial moment in history. You see, his presence is making the difference. His plan is making the difference. His sacrifice on Calvary will ultimately make the difference. And verse 11 can be a little bit confusing in some modern translations, which say, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But here the AV seems to capture the sense of why Jesus let her alone against the day of my burying hath she kept this. It changes the understanding of what is happening. Mary has known Jesus for some time. Now, we're not told when she got the alabaster flask of ointment. But we do know this, that when she met Jesus, it was his. And she was keeping it for the day of his burial. But she's so motivated by what she has seen in the resurrection of Lazarus. She is so motivated by the reality of who Jesus is and she probably has already been told by him what's going to happen, that he's going to go to the cross. She can't contain it any longer and she anoints him there and then. It seems that whilst Mary expresses the value of Jesus with her sacrifice, she is maybe unwittingly being part of the prophetic picture. And this flask that she has been storing for when Jesus dies, she now uses it all so that Jesus can signify his impending death. Pentecost summing up says, while she gave evidence of personal faith in the midst of rejection, she also did this in anticipation of Christ's death. At no point does Jesus refute the need to care for the poor, but in verse 8, he does draw a distinction. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And he alludes to Deuteronomy 15 and 11, where we read, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And through his whole life, Jesus exemplified the care of the poor. But at the same time, he emphasizes that a saving relationship with himself is more important, more preeminent. And really, if you're ever going to have a chance of doing social concern, it will come out of the result of knowing Jesus. Social concern and action as important as it is, is not the gospel. And Jesus would explain his value in different passages of Scripture. Matthew 13, 45 and 46, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, 
who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, he's emphasizing the value of himself. Hebrews 3 and 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. He's starting to explain the value of who he is as the creator of this world, as the sustainer of this world. I'm sure you know what it is to be praised. I'm sure you've had it. At some point in your life, you've had praise. And maybe you try to deflect the praise and say, oh, no, it's not me. I can't sing. I can't play, play the, the organ or the piano. I, I'm, I'm no good at football or, or whatever. And you try to deflect the praise. It's false modesty because you can do the thing. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is God. And it's so important that we understand that he is, that he wants us to know that he is worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise. This is not sinful human pride coming out here. This is Jesus making the distinction that he is God and we are not. So we need to value and worship him. That's why, first of all, Jesus' value is expressed. And then when it's questioned, Jesus comes back and he explains his own value to the people who were listening. And then fourthly and finally, we see the value of Jesus realized in verses 9 through to 11. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. There is reality in the gospel whereby people count the cost of following Jesus and consider him to be of more value than anything else, and they turn their backs on riches and popularity and safety, and they, value, and they value him above all else. And in verse 9, we see the, the curiosity of the crowd. In verse 10, we see the cunningness of the chief priests, and then in verse 11, we see these wonderful conversions to Christ as men and women and young people probably respond and, and follow Jesus. The crowd is probably large. It's curious about Jesus. And they want to know, did he really raise Lazarus from the dead? Now, it's one thing to be curious. It's something completely different to be converted and then in verse 10, the chief priests, they're feeling threatened by the potential loss of influence and income if the Jews turn and follow Jesus. So they refocus the efforts that they've already said they will have in, in chapter 12 and double down with the intention of having him killed. And then in verse 11, we see the response of many of the Jews as they turn to Christ. And it results in a 
complete change of life as they believe in Jesus and become followers of him. Now, it's costly for them. They'll be rejected. They'll be spoken negatively about. They might even be abused or or arrested. But it doesn't matter because they've got to the point where they've looked at Jesus and they've seen how worthy he is, how valuable he is, and they want to make Jesus their own. And they respond to him there and then in front of the chief priests, counting Jesus as more important. And we see this throughout Scripture, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Salome, the mother of James and John, misunderstands the nature of following Christ and she asks for her two sons to have preeminent places in heaven. And Jesus explains the value of what he has come to do and he tells her, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus hasn't come with an attitude like Judas, which is to take. Jesus has come with an attitude to give. It's not giving a proportion of what he has, just like Mary did, as, as generous as Mary was. It was only a proportion of what she had. It's, it, it's all, and he is. He gives everything. He turns his back on the riches of heaven. He lives a simple subsistence level life on earth and then gives up his own life to buy us back from the control and condemnation of sin. The way Jerry Bridges explains it is is that Jesus takes all of our sin and pays for it to purchase our forgiveness but then deposits into our account all of his righteousness So that whenever Jesus, or whenever God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus and his righteousness covering us. The principle of exchanging our meager value for Christ's inestimable value is all over the pages of our Bible. James 2 and 23 emphasizes the value of faith in Jesus. James, using Abraham as an Old Testament example, writes... And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Hebrews 11, the very end of the catalogue of the the heroes of the faith, the writer um, uh, concludes by saying others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Why? Because they understood how valuable God was. And then looking forward in Revelation 12 and 11, looking to the end of time, John speaking of those who suffered death For their faith in Jesus says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. (coughs) Excuse me. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They found Jesus so valuable that they were willing to lose their own lives for the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. In each of these and other scriptural examples, the person who believes turns from placing value on sin and self to placing value upon Jesus, his life, his death on the cross, and a future with him as more valuable than their present existence. And that is why whenever we get to verse 11 of chapter 12 of John's gospel, we read that there were many going away and believing in Jesus. Is that not why you had that event yesterday? Is that not why in the next week and in coming weeks you're going to have more and more things to reach your local district, your family, your friends, your loved ones? Because you want them to go away believing in Jesus. And you want them one day to be with you in heaven for all of eternity. But more than that, you want them to look at Jesus the same way you look at him. And see him as of the utmost value. How much is he worth? He's worth everything. Absolutely everything. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you. And we praise you for your love and your kindness towards us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it shows us again and again and again that Jesus is worth more than anything we could ever have in this life. We pray, Lord, that like Mary, you'd help us to release our grip. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be like Judas, cynical and sneering and questioning. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be like the many in verse 11 who turned to Jesus even in the midst of difficulty and the risk of everything that would come with following Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. Make us strong in your Son because he is the one who makes us perfect in our weakness. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm just going to sing in closing. It's 418 in our hymn books, 418. All the way my Saviour leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Thank you.